Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Russian Federation President Vladimir Putin recently announced that he will run for another six-year term in 2018. He has been either president or prime minister of his country since 2000 and is expected to easily win. During Putin's reign, Russia has reasserted itself on the world stage, sending forces to Georgia, Syria, and eastern Ukraine, and even annexing Crimea. And in 2016, Russian cyber interference in the U.S. presidential election is considered by some to have been a deciding factor in Donald Trump's victory. To discuss the challenge of Vladimir Putin in Russia, I'm joined today by Alina Polyakova. She is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe at Brookings. Her specialties include European politics, far-right populism and nationalism, and Russian foreign policy. You can also listen to her in a new series about Russian politics and society on the Lawfare podcast. She recently interviewed Arkady Ostrovsky, the Russia and Eastern Europe editor at The Economist. Stay tuned in this episode for another edition of Wessel's Economic Update with senior fellow David Wessel. He talks about big changes coming to the Federal Reserve as Fed Chair Janet Yellen leaves and Fed Governor Jay Powell takes the helm. After the interview, I'll present my discussion with Noha Abuel Dahab, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Doha Center, about her paper on transitional justice in authoritarian contexts, with a focus on Egypt. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Alina, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks for having me. It's always great and interesting for me to talk about Vladimir Putin in Russia, because that's what I studied in college. It seems like a long time ago, but it always kind of resurfaces a lot of that old school uh, <laughs> studies for me. So this is always very interesting <laughs> to talk to people who are like really experts on this kind of stuff. So thank you. Could you first tell listeners how you came to be a scholar in the field of European politics and Russian foreign policy and you know, what interested you so much about it to stick with it to earn your doctorate in this field? Sure. Thanks for asking the question. I think I don't have a typical path. I was born in Ukraine, lived there only during the Soviet days, and then my family immigrated in the early 90s, so right during the fall to the U.S. So I've had the language. Russian is my native language, and I knew I wanted to use it in some way to do research. So long story short, I ended up doing a doctorate in, at Berkeley looking at issues of the rise of European far-right populism at a time when not too many people were concerned about that. And as part of that, I had considered doing some research in Russia. This was 2006. So I spent a summer living in Moscow and just what we call preliminary research, talking to people, trying to understand the situation there at the time. And already in 06, this was six years into Putin's term, I felt that there was a tightening and a closing that even about quite banal everyday questions, people weren't interested or willing to talk to somebody who they saw as not from there. And eventually I sort of left that and realized that we all do research in Russia because people weren't going to be talking to me. And fast forward to 2014, Russia invades Ukraine, takes over Crimea, starts a war in Ukraine's east. And what I saw happening at that time was quite shocking, actually. I was living in Europe at the time. I was teaching. And I saw that the Western media reporting and what was happening in Ukraine was basically reproducing the Russian 
narrative, meaning English language media, German language media, they were framing what was happening in Ukraine in the same way that RT or Sputnik were framing what was happening in Ukraine, which was that the Crimeans wanted to be part of Russia, that the Russian government was actually doing a humanitarian mission in Ukraine's east to try to protect Russian speakers, ethnic Russians, etc. And I was quite shocked by some of the reporting I was reading And that was a moment when I realized that there's a bigger issue here, a bigger issue of how the Russian government has learned to manipulate our media environment, how they have over time developed an increasingly more sophisticated network of political influence. You know, when I heard a lot of political leaders in Europe, especially not really knowing how to make sense of what the Russians were doing at the time. Now, the situation, of course, has changed pretty dramatically now. I think they have a much better understanding of what the Russians are doing. But it took some really dramatic events. I mean, it took the interference in the U.S. presidential elections for us to really wake up to what has been happening for a very long time. Well, I'd like to get your insight on these ways that Russia today and Vladimir Putin as the leader of Russia project power. We know Russia has a very weak economy and internally, at least compared to the old Soviet system, it has a weak political system, even though Putin dominates it internally. So in terms of the ways that Russia today projects power, we see the conventional means with troops getting sent to some places. But let's talk for a minute about its cyber influence in the U.S. election and also in some places in Europe. Just in a real brief nutshell, how would you characterize Russia's influence in the 2016 U.S. presidential election? What did it do? I think what we saw in the United States in 2016 was, in many ways, a replication of what has been happening in other post-Soviet countries, especially Ukraine. And you mentioned cyber. But I think cyber and media, the information environment, they're very much linked. Right? So what we saw actually happening in the United States wasn't just a cyber hack. Countries, intelligence services are constantly trying to gather information. We break into each other's servers, et cetera, for intelligence gathering purposes. But what we saw was this merger of cyber attacks with a disinformation campaign. And it was really that latter part of the disinformation campaign that was so significant because we really saw our national narratives around the elections uh, being hijacked by a foreign power, them setting the agenda on what the news media were covering at the time. And I think it really took, I mean, we're still in that moment now, actually, a sort of moment of reckoning, trying to understand how did we get here? How are we so easily manipulated? And I don't mean manipulate in the sense that I think what the Russians did in 2016 actually changed the outcome of the election. I don't think it did. I think we would have had the same outcome anyways. But what was particularly shocking is just how brazen and out in the open the Russian campaign was. And when I say Russian, I should be clear that I'm not necessarily talking about just the Russian government. I mean, we know from intelligence agencies in the United States that the Russian intelligence services were involved in the hacking, especially, and also in leaking that information to WikiLeaks. But there are also many, many proxies and intermediaries and, you know, renegade volunteers, whatever you want to call them, that are de facto helping the Russian government, but we can't necessarily attribute them to working directly for the Russian government. You call it brazen and out in the open. What do those facts say about what the Russian government, Vladimir Putin, think about the way that they extend this power now? I mean, back in the Soviet days, it would all have been undercover and people would not have really learned about it unless there was a big case. So out in the open, is that saying that Russia doesn't care that we know about it? 
Well, you know, in the Soviet period, of course, the Soviet Union did use overt propaganda that we knew was propaganda to try to influence international interpretations of various events. There are many instances of how the Soviet Union tried to do this. But I think what's also changed is that, one, there's been a massive technological revolution. The digital revolution has changed the tools that foreign governments like Russia have access to to spread this kind of disinformation. And it's also widened the scope of potential actors that could be involved, right? So now it's not just newspapers. It's social media accounts. It's Twitter bots. It's trolls. It's fake Facebook accounts. All of these different things, right? We're just putting out fake news sites that those can be put up very, very quickly. So I think that has changed. But to me, you know, what the evidence suggests is that the Russians, the way they carry out foreign policy in general vis-a-vis the West is they test the waters and they look for the response. I mean, we do this too. This is a rational way to run things. You look at how your adversaries respond to your actions. And I think what Putin realized that there haven't been really severe consequences or responses for what the Russians have done in places like Ukraine, even what the Russians did with their military campaign in Syria. And so I think they felt like there was an opportunity here to take it one step further, and then there wouldn't be any severe consequences for them. Of course, there have been consequences. I don't want to get too much into like sanctions and things like that, but I still don't think that they actually have worked to deter a potential future attack of a similar nature. So do you think the Russians will continue to try to be involved, to meddle in, to influence U.S. elections? I don't see what would stop them right now. I know this is a huge concern for our political leaders in the United States. Obviously, we have the 2018 elections coming up. And what we know, looking at what has happened in Ukraine, for example, is that the Russian government and the various intelligence services have a much greater capacity to do a lot more, meaning... In our elections so far, we can't tell what the evidence is in terms of them hacking into voting machines and trying to change the vote count. In a way, you don't really have to do that when you have a disinformation machine that you can harness instead and really change the narrative around events. But they certainly have done that in Ukraine. They could potentially do that here. Also, tax and critical infrastructure. I mean, there's this nightmare cyber scenario where suddenly you have a major blackout and your electrical grid is down. If that were to happen in the United States, obviously that would be a huge crisis. This has happened in Ukraine already more than once, and the Ukrainians have attributed that those kinds of attacks to the Russians. So I think you know going forward, unless there is a very obvious you know set of rules that says if you do this, face the consequence X. I don't know what would actually stop not just the Russian government, but any foreign government that seeks to undermine U.S. interests, U.S. national security, European interests, European national security, uh, from taking this a step further. Well, then that's my segue to this question is, what is in it for the Russian government to interfere in U.S. and other elections specifically? Maybe just focusing on the U.S. If determining the outcome is really not 100 percent in the cards for them, because it's still a huge electoral system, why would they want to interfere in the U.S. electoral process? We have to realize this goes far beyond the elections. I mean, we are focusing on elections because that is the hot political issue. And of course, the United States was deeply affected and shocked by Russian interference and meddling in our elections. But it's really not just about that. It's about, I think, weakening Western resolve, weakening Western consensus. Because from the Russian point of view, you know, Putin is not 
an ideological leader. Russia today is not the Soviet Union. One reason it's not like the Soviet Union is that there is no clear ideology emanating from the Kremlin. You know, this is also a difference in the propaganda. It's not that they're putting forward a set of ideas. It's more that they're trying to make us question whether our ideas, our values, and our principles are the right ones, right? So it's about weakening your opponent as a way to strengthen yourself, given that this very empty ideological space in Russia today. They don't actually have any positive agenda they could put forward, given what you were saying earlier, Fred, about the weakness of the Russian state and the Russian economy. But, you know, if I can interject, you know, just to change the discussion a little bit, you know, I do think that because of what happened in the U.S. around the elections, however, that there's a sort of borderline hysteria where we want to see Russia everywhere. You know, there's this old Italian saying, you know, Russia's like parsley, it's everywhere, right? But it's not. I mean, I think we have to understand that Putin is not all-powerful. He's not omniscient. The Russian government is inefficient, not well-coordinated. There's a lot of internal issues and tensions. And so we need to also be much more clear-eyed about what they can and cannot do and not attribute a lot more to them than what's actually there. Thank you for that. I think that's a fascinating perspective. So let's leave the U.S. case then. You've done a lot of research on Russia's relations with European countries. We have seen there's been elections or campaigns of some kind in Britain, in Germany, in France, and some other Western European countries. What about Southern Europe? That's something that you've looked at recently. Spain, Greece, and particularly Italy. I read something that you wrote that said Russia is very involved in Italy or working with Italian political parties. Can you talk about what that is all about, what it means? Well, I think if we look at the big picture of asymmetric warfare, or if you want to call it that, which is what we're really talking about, we're talking about disinformation, cyber attacks, is these kind of below-the-line tools. I would say there are four pieces that go into that. Two we've been talking about, that's cyber attacks, disinformation campaigns. Then there's also the export of corruption and kleptocracy, particularly through the energy sector in the Russian case. And the fourth, which is what you're referring to with the Southern Europe cases, is the cultivation of political allies. And of course, not just in Italy, Greece, and Spain, but across Europe, we've seen the Russian government form these increasingly more dense relationships with Europe's, you could say, challenger fringe parties. These are the far-right populist parties that are gaining traction in many European countries today because of internal issues, right? It's not that Russia is driving support for these parties, but they're certainly trying to take advantage of it because these are the political actors who can undermine European countries from the inside, right? And that's useful for the Russians. And in Italy specifically, you're referring to a report that I edited and wrote the introduction for called the Kremlin's Trojan Horses 2. There's a Kremlin's Trojan Horses 1, so it's not just calling out our southern European friends. This is a problem that's pervasive in Germany, the UK, France, and elsewhere. But I think what's most shocking to me about Italy and what comes out in this report so clearly is how dense and long-standing the relationship that the Russians have developed with the Northern League, which is a far-right nationalist Italian political party, and the so-called Five Star Movement, which is now a political party but was started as a movement. And the Five Star Movement is polling as a number one political actor right now in Italy. Italy has elections coming up, it looks like most likely in March, if a party that is anti-sanctions, that is pro-Putin, pro-Kremlin, 
wins the elections and sets up a government, maybe in coalition with another political party, that could dramatically shift European politics, not just in Italy, but within the EU, and then, of course, between the United States and Europe. Because, of course, the United States relies on Europe to be an ally in its policy towards Russia and other countries. So if we have one member state that's a weak link, that's a serious potential problem for the United States as well. So I think what comes out is that Italy could be the next weak link. And of course, the transatlantic partnership, European unity, is only as strong as that weakest link. Let's take a short break here for David Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. There's an awful lot going on in Washington these days. The Trump White House soap opera, the Russian investigation, the tension with North Korea, the tax bill. So much news that it may overshadow big changes at the Federal Reserve. Changes that are going to touch nearly all of us, consumers, workers, borrowers, investors, businesses. After four years, Janet Yellen is about to leave the Federal Reserve with an impressive track record. She has begun to wean the economy off extraordinarily low interest rates with hardly a hiccup from financial markets. Unemployment is down to 4.1%, the lowest in 18 years. Inflation is running at about 1.5%, a bit below the Fed's target, but close to what you might consider price stability. As she said at her last press conference, there is less to lose sleep about than has been true for quite some time. Nonetheless, her designated successor, Fed Governor Jay Powell, faces some formidable challenges. One, how far and how fast to raise interest rates. The Fed has lifted rates by a full percentage point in the past year. The latest projections by Fed policymakers suggest they see another three-quarters of a percentage point of rate increases in 2018. But that assumes that inflation will rise towards the Fed's 2% target. If it doesn't, Mr. Powell has a decision to make. Could he delay those projected rate increases, as Ms. Yellen has done in the past, and admit the Fed misjudged the economy? Or would he continue rate increases because he sees a tightening labor market as a portent of inflation ahead? Two, the tax cut. Mr. Powell has to judge how the tax bill, assuming it passes, will affect the economy. Will it boost demand in an economy already near at full employment? If so, the Fed probably will raise rates faster than it plans. Or will it boost supply by inducing more business investment? If so, the Fed can relax a bit. The economy can grow faster than it expects without generating too much inflation. Oh, and he probably has to figure all this out in advance. Three, the politics. Donald Trump has not criticized the Fed, but that may not last, particularly if the economy or financial markets stumble in the run-up to the 2018 midterm elections. Everyone will be watching Mr. Powell closely to see if he bends to political pressure or stands up to it. Four, the next recession. Sometime in his four-year term as Fed chairman, Mr. Powell may confront a recession. Indeed, a Wall Street Journal survey of economists found they put the odds of a recession in the next three years at four in 10. In past recessions, the Fed has cut interest rates by four or five percentage points. But today, few policymakers see short-term interest rates rising above three and a quarter percent in the next few years. That makes a four or five percent rate cut impossible. So if a recession hits, Mr. Powell will have to consider what's known as unconventional monetary policies, more buying of bonds, perhaps even negative interest rates. And none of those options may be popular inside or outside the Fed. 
Mr. Powell has been at the Fed for five and a half years as Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen successfully steered the economy to a pretty good place. I don't know what Donald Trump told Mr. Powell when he gave him the nod, but I can bet what he was thinking. Don't screw it up, Jay. We're all thinking pretty much the same thing. You can visit our SoundCloud channel to listen to more updates from David and learn more about fiscal and monetary policy on our website at brookings.edu slash Hutchins Center. So I can understand why Russia would see sanctions as a bad thing for it. It costs a lot of rich people in Russia a lot of money. But what would you say Russia sees as the threat to itself? In the Soviet days, we would think, you know, NATO, huge armies in Western Europe, poised to invade or something. Of course, NATO thought that too. What is the threat as Russia sees it, that it's projecting what power it has in the ways that it is projecting them? Well, I think we should probably also distinguish between what Putin sees a threat to him and his stability, his ability to maintain power in Russia versus a threat to Russia as a country and to the Russian people. I think if we're talking about the former, so what's Putin's threat perception? I don't think it's changed that dramatically since the Cold War years, frankly. I mean, if you look at Russia's official military doctrine or what the Russian media put out in terms of what they perceive as threats, it's still NATO, which they see as offensive organization. It's also the EU, which they see as an offensive organization. And it's also Russia's potential loss of its sphere of influence. The Russian view of the international order is that there should be a country, a major player in each region, that is basically free to do what it sees fit with the countries around it. So, of course, in the Russian case, the countries that comprise Russia's perceived sphere of influence are the former Soviet states and sometimes also the former East Bloc states that are not NATO EU member states like the Baltics, for example. So that is what the regime sees as its external threats. Internally, I think the major threat is a popular uprising. This is, I think, far more important for Putin even than the international situation. It explains to some degree why the Russians went into Ukraine, because if you have a popular uprising in a country that's so similar to Russia historically, linguistically, culturally, what would stop that from happening on the streets of Moscow, for example? And I think Putin's biggest fear is that somehow Russia will fall apart, particularly driven by some sort of popular uprising. And that's also why the regime has moved so strategically and so aggressively to repress any independent voices in Russia today. Right. The leading opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, is barred from running. I'm not even sure where he is now. Is he still in Russia or is he out of Russia? Is no, he in jail? As, as far as I know, he is in Russia. His organization, his campaign, his supporters are trying to fight in the Russian courts. As you mentioned, he's currently not being allowed to compete in the presidential elections despite wanting to because he has a criminal conviction that was obviously politically motivated, trumped up charges, and they're trying to fight this conviction in the Russian courts right now. It seems to me like Russia is putting a lot of its resources into efforts to influence, to subvert, to sow chaos, rather than building alliances in a positive way. Now, I don't want to compare it too much to the Soviet Union. I don't want to ascribe 
positive alliances to the Soviet Union, but at least it built relationships with other communist governments around the world and like Cuba and, and some in Africa. Is Russia building any alliances using positive and overt means? I certainly wouldn't say that Russia's isolated today. Putin right now is on a bit of a whirlwind trip across Middle East and Turkey. He went to Syria, where he was embraced by Bashar al-Assad, of course, as an ally. Iran remains a strong ally for Russia. Putin also met with Erdogan. So those relationships are being forged. Russia has also tried very assertively to build a close relationship with China, of course. Their pivot to Asia hasn't worked out that well, neither has the U.S. pivot to Asia. But, you know, there are these other alliances that President Putin has spent time trying to build. And, of course, there's all the alliances I mentioned with various political forces in Europe. So Russia is not isolated, but, of course, you can say, well, who are its allies? And if you look at them, I mean, it does appear like Russia is trying to lead this new emerging group of authoritarians, illiberal leaders, kind of trying to, I guess, maybe build something like a nationalist internationalist, if that's not an oxymoron, as a strategic competitor to the West, a Western liberal order, of course, that the United States has crafted and led for the better half of the 20th century. So it's a strategic competition, I think, on the world stage that Russia sees itself engaging in. What do you think the government's and even the non-governmental organizations and businesses in the Western liberal order should do to counter this Russian interference? Clearly, the social media companies allowed, because they weren't aware, their platforms to be manipulated by Russian disinformation campaigns. And not just by Russian disinformation campaigns. These platforms are open. They're easily accessible. They are easily manipulated. And I think there's a lot that organizations like Twitter and Facebook and Google can do to prevent that from happening again. They've taken some steps. It hasn't been enough yet, in my view. What they've done so far, I'd encourage our listeners, if they're interested in this issue, to read the congressional testimonies from Twitter, Google, and Facebook that they did on October 31st, November 1st in the United States. Very interesting numbers come out of that. And the other side more looking at you know private firms in the energy sector for example you know we should be asking ourselves questions about what kinds of companies should for example western or american energy firms be engaged in in these bigger projects there's for example a very controversial project called Nord Stream 2 that is a pipeline project so the russians have been trying to build a new gas pipeline that would basically allow them to deliver gas to europe keep Europe more dependent on Russian gas, and bypass Ukraine. So they really want to be able to control gas flows to Europe without having to go through Ukraine for obviously political reasons. I think just being honest that a lot of Russian activities in the private sector are not driven by market competition or economic desires or needs. They're really being driven by political agenda. And so far, Europeans especially have been reluctant to talk about this in the open exactly because there's so much money involved. These gas pipeline projects are incredibly profitable. They can dramatically shift power dynamics within the EU based on what countries, the energy hub, et cetera. So I think there has to be a lot more soul searching, a lot more political leadership that takes place and a lot more responsibility that our social media companies need to take for what's been happening. Well, Alina, looking ahead, you're one of our David M. Rubenstein fellows 
You're going to be here for the better part, I guess, of the next two years. What is going to be on your research agenda that we can look forward to talking about some more? Well, I'll continue to work on some of these issues we've been discussing, primarily this bigger question of how do we understand political warfare from state actors, Russia being the driving force of that, but not just how do we understand it, how do we get ahead of it is the bigger question for me, specifically in the tech space. I mentioned that the very clear difference when we were in the 20th century to where we are today is the digital revolution. And there are technologies that we don't really have a good understanding of that will and are transforming not just the healthcare sector, for example, or other sectors, but they're transforming our information environment. And they're transforming our information environment in a faster way than we can keep up with. Of course, I'm talking about things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of these different technologies that have profound consequences for the balance of power in the world stage, for geopolitics. So going forward, I'll be working more on these issues. I'll be hopefully doing a longer project on that and really trying to understand what the world's going to look like when you have this authoritarian forces on the rise that are threatening liberal democracies from without and from within and how technology plays into all of this competition. Okay, well, I hope to talk to you again about some of that kind of thing. Alina, thank you for sharing your expertise and time with me today. Thank you, Fred. You can learn more about Alina Polyakova on our website, brookings.edu, and also check out her special series on the Lawfare podcast. And now, a discussion with Noha Abuel Dahab, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Doha Center. She is the author of Transitional Justice and the Prosecution of Political Leaders in the Arab Region, a comparative study of Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, and Yemen, and also the Doha Center Policy Briefing, Transitional Justice Policy in Authoritarian Contexts, the Case of Egypt. Noha, thanks for joining me to talk about your research. Thank you. Let's start with what is transitional justice? Well, this is a contentious issue, really. I mean, there are various definitions, and scholars and practitioners of transitional justice still struggle to define what it is. But basically, it's addressing the past, addressing past crimes and atrocities, a legacy of atrocities in a society that's transitioning from one kind of rule to another kind of rule. One of the problematic assumptions in mainstream transitional justice practice and scholarship is that a transition constitutes a shift from authoritarian rule to liberal democratic rule, which is simply not the reality in a lot of transitions, not just in the Arab region. So in thinking about the definition of transitional justice, we also need to think about what a transition actually is. I think that's a huge assumption that we make, and I didn't realize that when I read your paper, that a transitional justice movement can occur in a place like Egypt, which is the case study that you're talking about in this paper, which even today is still an authoritarian regime. So what does transitional justice look like in the case of Egypt, which is still an authoritarian country? Well, you'll find in Egypt that the way that transitional justice has been pursued depends on the actors involved. So generally speaking, there are two sets of actors that have been waging a battle for competing visions of transitional justice. So on the one hand, you'll have you know, the military and the interim and post-transitional authorities, certain sort of allies within the judiciary that push for a certain kind of transitional justice that entrenches authoritarian rule. But on the other hand, you'll have civil society actors, and this includes lawyers and activists, journalists and human rights activists who push for a genuine reckoning with the past. So in the end, you have a battle for competing visions of transitional justice. 
Can you walk our listeners briefly through the case of Egypt over the past few years, where it was, what happened with the Arab Spring, and how we got to where we are now in Egypt? In 2011, as you know, when the former Egyptian president, Hosni Mubarak, was ousted, soon after that, there were mass protests calling for his prosecution for past crimes. What happened was there were a flurry of trials targeting not just Mubarak, but other former ministers and other high-level government officials. But what happened in these trials is that most of them focused on crimes that were committed during the uprising. So we're talking about a three-week period here as opposed to decades of, you know, human rights violations and social grievances. Now, of course, there were some exceptions to this, but generally speaking, it was very limited. The scope of the trials was very limited. And in my research, I kind of draw this conclusion that the reason for this limited scope has to do with portraying the uprising period as an exceptional period, that it wasn't the norm. The trials of Mubarak, a former minister of interior, Habib al-Adli, and so on, they were used as scapegoats to sort of give the impression that there's been a break with the former regime when, in fact, the old guard has morphed into the new regime. Right now, there's been a lot of tensions, obviously, between civil society and the regime. There have been enactment of laws that repress protests and so on. So it's increasingly difficult to stage, you know, mass protests and sit-ins and so on. So we see that the pursuit of justice is largely taking place place in the courts. Yeah, it seems like from an uninitiated observer like myself that transitional justice would be an activity that is pursued and promoted by, as you said, civil society organizations, lawyers, journalists. But how can those kinds of organizations even hope to be successful in an authoritarian regime? The thing with civil society actors is Despite the fact that they are one of the most repressed actors in an authoritarian context, they are one of the primary drivers of objectives such as transitional justice. You'll find that a lot of the civil society leaders in Egypt are the same ones who were quite prominent before the 2011 uprising happened. And so they have institutional memory, which is key to the effectiveness of what they do. They understand, they know how the judiciary works, they kind of know how, you know, the regime works, and they operate within that to try and pursue accountability. And so what they've been doing is they've been filing cases, criminal cases in the courts, despite the fact that they know that the chances of these cases going forward are very slim. But sometimes they do, they do go through. And one good example is very strong efforts to file cases against corrupt public contracts. And this has to do with real estate, you know, corrupt real estate deals, but also, you know, problematic privatization of national companies. And the administrative courts in Egypt were very receptive to these cases, and they issued rulings in favor of a lot of these cases. So it really depends on which courts you're dealing with. And civil society actors are very well aware of this, and they take advantage of that. Can you talk some more about the role of judicial activism in transitional justice circumstances? And you talk about this in your research. There's a long sort of history of judicial independence movement in Egypt, but also in other countries in the Arab region. There was a judicial uprising, as they call it, in 2005, where they exposed irregularities in the elections and so on. Given the current difficult political climate in Egypt, it's hard to identify these independent elements within the judiciary. 
But obviously, they're very key partners with civil society in the pursuit of justice. I argue that the role of judges is important to challenge the unconstitutional nature of certain laws. I give the example as well of, you know, all these military trials that have been taking place since the uprising. And judges have a role to play there in sort of putting their foot down and saying this is not the correct venue for such trials to take place. So they need to be more vocal about it. You make an interesting distinction in the policy paper between transitional justice as a process and transitional justice as an outcome. Can you talk about that distinction? Yeah. I mean, this goes back to the problematic assumption in the predominant way in which transitional justice has been pursued, which assumes that a transition is a shift from authoritarian violent rule to liberal democratic rule. As I mentioned, when you look at transitional justice, it depends what a transition is. What are we transitioning from and what are we transitioning to? But also this concept of justice differs depending on who you talk to. Some people view justice as forgiveness. Others view it as retribution in the courts and so on. And so it's very difficult, if not impossible, to determine a definitive of transitional justice outcome. If you look at Latin America, for example, almost 40 years after the overthrow of military dictatorships there, prosecutions are still ongoing, truth commissions are still being established. So the process of transitional justice, is, it takes decades. And it's very difficult to explain that to some victims who understandably seek a rapid justice, you know, for torture, for arbitrary detention, for murder, and so on. If you look at transitional justice as a process, this helps manage the expectations of victims, and it also gives them more agency to participate in the process, whether it's through documentation and so on. So in the case of Egypt, whose interests would you say are currently being served by the transitional justice process that is happening there? Well, you know, some would argue that the transitional justice process in Egypt is dead. I don't think it's dead. I think that while the regime has succeeded in clamping down on a genuine reckoning with the past, the struggle for justice still continues, and it's largely being fought in the courts. What's interesting is that transitions take a very legalistic form, right? And authoritarian regimes are very legalistic. They keep enacting laws. And so it makes sense that the battle for transitional justice is largely taking place in the courts. So, you know, it remains to be seen. I think it's going to take a very long time for any kind of genuine reckoning with the past to unfold in Egypt. But civil society remains a primary driver of this process. Well, we know the Arab Spring occurred in Egypt, but it also engulfed many other countries in the region. Are there lessons that you've learned in the case of transitional justice in Egypt that apply to some of these other countries that were affected by the Arab Spring as well? I think that it's important to note that there is a danger in limiting the scope of justice to the period of the uprising, which is largely what has happened in Egypt, again, with certain exceptions. But generally speaking, it really has focused on a three-week period. But if you look at Tunisia, initially, there was this limited scope as well. But with the establishment of a truth commission there in Tunisia, its mandate extends to 1955 from independence. And so they're really trying to look at this legacy of atrocities in Tunisia. But of course, we know that the political situation in Tunisia is very different from the political 
political situation in Egypt. I think the important lesson to be drawn here is that there is no need to wait for this mythical, you know, ideal liberal democracy to take place in order to pursue transitional justice. Transitional justice can be pursued immediately. And one really good example of that is Syria, which is another country that I've been looking at quite closely recently. Obviously, there's an ongoing war in Syria. It's a protracted conflict. And yet, there are Syrian civil society actors based inside and outside Syria who have been documenting and building criminal cases against Syrian regime officials and other perpetrators. So all this to say that, you know, the pursuit of transitional justice need not wait for this ideal transition to take place. Well, Noha, where do you take this research next? We need to rethink transitional justice. We need to rethink what we mean by transition and what we mean by justice. Transitions vary. They're extremely diverse. Just look at the Arab region itself, but also in other parts of the world to realize that. And so I think that in the case of ongoing conflict and resurgent authoritarianism, we need to steer away from these formulaic approaches of certain international institutions that call for, you know, obscure transitional justice measures to be taken and really think about how to make use of deep state institutions or current institutions that haven't changed from the past to implement some form of justice. Well, Noha, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise with me in the studio today. Thank you very much. You can learn more about Noha Abuel Dahab's research on traditional justice on our website, brookings.edu slash Doha. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air, and I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>